2, Galatians chapter 2. I haven't got my blue Bible here with me, so I can't shout out the cheating number for you, the page number. But What page is it, Sheila, in the blue Bible? 1168, if you've got a blue Bible from the back, or grab one if you'd like one. This is our fourth part in our series, working our way through the letter to the Galatians. There's six chapters, we're going to look at it over 12 sermons until September. And I was just reflecting on this letter last night, and I was, as, as I've been reading it more and more, I'm recognising and relishing the fact that the Gospel is actually simple, and yet there is an unending, fathomless depth to it. Does that make sense? There is a deep simplicity to the Gospel, the good news of Jesus, what he has done for us, who he is, why he did it. Actually, it's very simple, and actually it blows everything else out of the water, and you can never get to the bottom of what he's done for you. It's amazing. And so I trust as we continue through this letter, all of us will come to that conclusion as well. What have we learned so far? Just a quick snippet of where we've been so far the previous three weeks. Uh, Initially, right at the beginning of the letter, Paul comes storming into this church in Galatia, which is now mid-modern Turkey. And he's only left them for a little while. They're a baby church. Only left them for a few years after he established them in his first missionary journey. And he's heard some people have come in and telling them, you're not proper Christians unless you avoid certain foods and men snip certain bits off. Circumcision. And he's going, what are you doing? It may just be a little bit of surgery and it may just be some diet changes or sitting at different tables, but actually what you're doing is destroying the gospel. You are spitting in Jesus' face effectively for what he's done for you. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Nothing you can do can make God love you more or love you less. It's about Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross, which we'll look at a bit later. And actually he's, he's suggesting maybe there is stuff that you have now added to the gospel and you need to snip off. What have you added to the gospel to make it about what proper Christianity is about? Jesus plus this, Jesus plus certain actions, Jesus plus a certain way of dress or a certain type of music or a certain involvement in the community or a certain need to withdraw from community. Anything you've added to the simplicity of what Jesus has done for you becomes a non-gospel. And then Julian shared with us about amazing grace and how about Paul shares that it's actually what Maggie was referring to earlier. God beckons us. We don't go looking for him and we find him. Actually, we then discover it's because he was calling us in the first place. I was watching a film on Friday, uh, last week. That I watched a couple of, film, couple of uh, times last week. It's one of the new films. I love it. But in there, there was a guy looking for a thief. And when he finds him, he goes, Ha-ha, I found you. And it turns out the thief goes, actually, I conjured you, he's an alchemist, I conjured you and I beckoned you to me. And actually he finds out the table's been turned on him. Actually, when we find Jesus, we then discover he's been calling us, he's been wooing us all along. It's the same kind of thing. And then last week, I wasn't around, but I've listened to it, David was sharing from the first part of chapter 2 about unity. And he's saying it's not about duplicity in the church. We're not all clones, we're not the Borg. But there is unity. We're allowed to be different. We're allowed to let our differences work for the good of the gospel and not actually to disunity. Unity is not uniformity, but unity is true. Teamwork is the body, different parts of the body working together and agreeing we have different callings and different ministries, but they're all laid on the same foundation of Jesus plus nothing. And so today we now come to the second part of chapter 2 where we'll continue, partly in some ways, continue that thing. We find out there's been a bit of a to-do between Paul, the writer of the letter, and Peter. 
one of Jesus' original disciples, one of his close circle, a bit brash, a bit of a big mouth, a bit of a plonker at times. And now he is actually one of the church fathers. God used him in a massive way in the founding of the church. And Peter has gone a little bit awry. And Paul has to deal with this. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. How Paul deals with it in a godly way for unity, not for disunity. So we just set the scene just one more time. What's leading up to this situation that Paul is talking about here? He's been on his first missionary journey and mid-40s AD, the church is in general from Jerusalem, is about 15 years old. And on his journey, he goes through what we now know as Turkey and plants the church in Galatia, which is who this letters to. He then returns to uh, Antioch as a big resourcing centre. A bit, a bit like, in some ways, City Church Canterbury has been a bit of a resourcing centre for us. They, it's, that's where Jenny and I come from. They've given us money before. We've, got, we've, we've, we've done a lot of uh, interlinking things with them. We've got Rob Shillito, one of their worship leaders, who's going to come over and lead worship here, hopefully in September. We get to share what they have to offer because they're, they're bigger and have more resources and they're able to resource us. That's just in a small way. Antioch was a massive resourcing centre for the rest of the churches across the region. And so Paul's planted this small church in Galatia. He's now headed this way over to Antioch. And when he's there, he then hears about these Judaizers, these people who are telling everyone you're not a proper Christian until you act like a Jewish one. And he hears about them and he's horrified. And as a result, they all go down to Jerusalem to have a big meeting with all the big church leaders and go, guys, have you heard about what's going on here? We need to sort something out. We need to make decisions and we need to take action. We can't let this carry on because this is a venom that is spreading through the church. Eventually they come back to Antioch and when he comes back he sees Peter's being a little bit naughty. Let's find out what's happening. Verse 11 of chapter 2 to the end of the chapter. When Peter came to Antioch I opposed him to his face because he was in the wrong. He doesn't mince his words, does he? Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. He used to eat with the non-Jews. I'm a Christian now, I'm one of you. In Christ there is no Jew and non-Jew, we're all the same. Jesus is the great equaliser, remember. He levels the playing field. So before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, the non-Jews, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, these Judaizers. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. He doesn't get mentioned very much in the New Testament, but he's an absolute dude. Check out Barnabas. He's one of my favourites. Even he was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He's passing it on. He's doing it himself now, isn't he? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, in inverted commas, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law, because by observing the law no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, 
and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let me just... Lord Jesus, I thank you that it is about you and not about us. I thank you that it's not about rules and regulations because as Paul said, otherwise you died for no reason whatsoever and it was a waste of time. It was a waste of your blood. It was a waste of your agony. And yet you did it because it's the only way to be right before you and the Father. It's about what you have done for us, not what we can do for you. And I'm so, so, so grateful because I know I would trip up time and time. I still do. But it's not dependent on that, it's dependent on you. So Lord, help us to recognise that more and more as we look at this passage in a bit more detail. Help us, Lord. Holy Spirit, reveal to us, we pray. Amen. So I'm going to look at a little bit of what Peter's been up to and why, but then focus a bit more on what Paul's response is to this. Because he doesn't say, Peter, Jesus didn't say do that, and he said do this, and here's the manual that Jesus gave to us. I photocopied you a spare. And you follow through the rules and regulations of what Jesus told us to do and everything will be all right. Comprende? He doesn't. He comes straight in and just simply says what Christ has done. Big difference. But a couple of questions often come up in life in general, particularly as Christians, when you're trying to work out how to live out this Christian life. It's not black and white, is it, life? There is some black. Don't go there. It causes you to sin don't go there. Some of it is quite obvious. Pornography, lying, blaming. It's obvious. That's wrong. There's a lot of white. What is good? Praising Jesus, reveling in him, reading his word and asking for his help to understand it. That's white. It's obvious. That's good. That's what we should be doing. But there's a lot of grey in the middle, is there not? A lot of grey. And actually one of my friends up in our church in Peterborough, Adam Bradley, he's just been preaching recently through 2 Corinthians. Uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians. And he's He's, he's termed it about working your way through the grey. Because there was a heck of a lot of grey in life. How, how, do we walk, how do we walk through that? So how can we define what is right and wrong? Particularly when we come to the grey. But then also, when we do see something that's wrong, we see one of our brothers going awry, and either they're doing it consciously, or perhaps unconsciously, how do we deal, that, deal with that in a way that honours Christ, that still brings unity, but we're still helping them see what they're up to. This is what Paul shows us today. First one, I just want to look at what Peter's been up to. He's responding to peer pressure. Peer pressure is a massive thing. We don't talk about it enough. It's a huge, huge thing. He is reinforcing what these Judaizers have been telling everybody, this false gospel that is Jesus plus certain laws to be a proper Christian. Peter, because he is fearing man, is because of peer pressure, these people come in and he doesn't want to upset them. Instead of sitting at the table with the Greeks and with the Turkish, or whatever you call them back then, he's actually withdrawn to eat at another table. That is as simple as sitting on another seat, physically. But as far as the gospel is concerned, that is a massive, massive problem, because the message it says is, you're not proper Christians, we are. At a church Jenny and I were at in the 90s, early 90s. Nowhere near here, it's all right. It was never said out loud, but it was heavily implied 
that you're only a proper Christian when you can speak in tongues. It's dangerous. That's not true. Tongues is a wonderful gift. Seek it. Ask for it. But at the end of the day, sometimes not everybody speaks in tongues. That doesn't mean you're any less of a Christian than someone who does. Please hear that. It's a wonderful gift. Seek it. But if you don't get it, you're not any less of a Christian. God's giving you other gifts. But that is dangerous. That is almost saying, we're in the tongues table, you're on the non-tongues table, we're the proper Christians. That's what Peter's doing. I'm being a proper Jewish Christian, you're being non-Jew Christians. You're slightly lower level. But then what he's doing, the other Jews that are with him, Paul says, they followed him as well. Oh yeah, we better go with Peter because we really respect him and we listen to what he says and we wouldn't want to upset him. So we're going to sit on this table. There's a crowded table by the end of it. Let's get some more chairs in. Bunk bed table or something, I don't know. Tiered table. Trying to get everyone around it. And then Barnabas is like... Old Barney. He's a great man of encouragement. He's a great rock in the church. He's brilliant. And even he's gone... Sorry, guys. I'll be over here if you need me. And it's giving out the wrong message. See, peer pressure can be conscious. It can be unconscious. It can be mindless acceptance. Who, who has laughed in a group of people who has laughed at a joke you don't get because you don't want to be the odd one out? Yeah, yeah, we've all done it. Still do it. <laughs> Please don't ask me to explain it. <laughs> I've no idea. There was, they did an experiment in America with groups of kids, 10 kids at a time, and they had three lines on a wall. And one was longer than the others. And they asked the kids to put their hand up when the teacher pointed to the longest line out of the three. When he reached the longest line... If you think it's the longest one, put your hands up. There was one kid in the group each time, they did across different groups, one kid in the group each time who didn't know that all the others had been told to put their hands up on the shortest one. 75% of the time, the kid who didn't know put his hands up with them for the wrong answer so he wouldn't be left out. We do it, don't we? We do it. Sometimes we do it consciously. Sometimes we do it unconsciously. When I was at school, I was about 12, and all the rage at the time were these string vest T-shirts, red and blue and yellow. I wanted one because I wanted to fit in with the in crowd, so I wore one. And looking at my physique, my manly physique, I'm sure you can quite imagine it probably wasn't the best fashion choice for me. I looked like a cocktail stick in a tea bag. I looked, I'm glad there is no photographic evidence. I found it all and burns it all. But I wanted to be in with the in crowd. Actually, I made myself look more of an idiot and they just laughed at me for it. So I soon stopped wearing it. But I wanted to be, it's peer pressure. You just want to please people. You want to be in with the crowd. We are social. We are tribal creatures. We all dress a certain way because we are not be associated with a certain type of person. There's a a reason why I wear jeans and t-shirt and have piercings because... I want to affiliate with that kind of, that's my interest, that's what I love. We dress, if you always dress in a tweed suit, it's because you're affiliating yourself with a certain type of person. That's what dress does, it tells people about yourself, doesn't it? If you dress all in black and you've got a long ponytail and big cowboy boots, you're affiliating yourself with a certain type of music, aren't you? That's why we dress, that's what we do. It's a little sign of, this is a bit of me. But we are social, we are tribal creatures. So there is conscious peer pressure, but there is also unconscious peer pressure. I remember when I first started in the ambulance service 20, 20 years ago, 
And um, the big thing at the time was taking as long as possible at hospital to have an hour's tea break after every patient before you call up. Sorry, hospital was a bit busy. And some of the youngsters would come into the job, be all keen, but they'd end up doing the same without even realising. Having a cup of tea, I sort of got a bit longer. And actually, it's, doesn't, it's not bigging me up. It's just my, my colleague and I, we, it just really, really pricked at our consciences. And we'd, we'd, give it, we'd have a quick cup of tea or whatever, but after about 20 minutes instead of 50 or 60 minutes, we would call up and come clear for an emergency call, which was probably the wisest thing to do as far as the Joe public's concerned. But we still had a bit of a tea break, but we'd call up before the others did. And they soon got us to one side and can, can you please stop doing this because this, you're making the rest of us look bad? Like, oh. We still didn't, and actually it gradually changed, not because of us, but others as well then. But there were some youngsters who joined the job at the same time as me who didn't even realise they were doing it. There's an unconscious peer pressure. You just affiliate to certain people you look up to, and you go along and start dressing like them and acting like them, and you're not even realising you're doing it sometimes. Peer pressure is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Peter's freedom was threatened by a fear of man. I suspect Peter's was more conscious than unconscious in some ways, but he didn't realise quite the implications of what he, doing, he was doing, but he knew he was eating at another table on purpose. But it was, it was because of a fear of man, which is dangerous. What will such and such think? Do you ever do that sometimes? You want to do something, but someone might be upset. Even if it's the right thing to do, you don't want to offend them, so you don't. What will such and such think? It's a bit of peer pressure, isn't it? But there is also... We need to be very aware of this before we move on. There's a lot of unconscious peer pressure in society today. I'm sure there always has been. A couple of examples, and it, and it seeped into the church as well. We need discernment in this. We need the, the ability to stand firm without separating ourselves from the world either. For example, same-sex marriage bill. I'm not going to spend a long time on this. It's a hot potato. We at Beacon Church fully affirm that anything outside of God's blueprint for marriage, man, woman, God winning for family, not always. Anything outside of that doesn't honour him. Not any one other thing in particular. Well, what has been interesting in the whole political debate is that same-sex marriage is only fair. It's about tolerance. It's about being loving. It's just like segregation in the deep south in America. Actually, no, it's not. Because that was, from the ground up, the public had a problem with it and wanted political constitutional change. This hasn't happened with the same-sex marriage bill. It's been a few small minorities within the political and particularly the judicial arena that have been pushing for it and gradually it's filtered down and people have gone along with it. Okay, this is the right thing to go for and people are now standing up and even outwardly voting, yes, I'm up for it, because of an upwards peer pressure that has filtered down through society. There is a singer called, called Dappy from N-Dubs, N-Dubs. And he is quite bless him, he's quoted as saying someone asked him about the same-sex marriage bill and he says, do you know what, I'm against it because there's just something in me just senses that there's something not right about this just the redefinition of the word marriage, whatever it is I struggle with that but I would never come out and say that out he's on recorder, I'd never come out and say this out loud because I'd be frightened of what my fans think of me, so as far as they're concerned I'm up for it <laughs> then got printed in an interview bless him, but that's what he says. I don't, I'm worried about what people will think, the people who buy my records. So as far as they're concerned, I'm up for the same-sex marriage bill, but in private, I'm not. It's peer pressure, isn't it? And that is what has happened in society. It's come from the top down. 
That's a whole other sermon on the subject itself. But just be aware of society peer pressure. You start believing something that actually, if you took time out to think about it, do you really believe that? Do you really agree with that? One other thing. This film I mentioned earlier about this guy who conjured his, his pursuer. It's called A Field in England. I think it's brilliant. It's one of the best films I've seen this year. And it was, it was cinematic history, the way it was released a couple of weeks ago, stuff like this. But the whole point of the film, one of the messages of the film, is about dualism. There's in black and white, there is mirror symmetry and weird... They, they take some magic mushrooms and go off on a weird trip. And it all goes into mirror images. There's, there's quotes about two halves of every man... There's references that actually maybe the bad guy is actually the good guy in his head and he's having a bit of a trip out. But it's about duality. It's brilliant. It's a very clever film. and it's, it, I, I love it. I think it's fantastic. But it actually, its main theme is dualism about good and evil in, in all of us. Actually, that is 2,000 years old. A guy called Pelagian, it was a heresy that he purported and was, was dealt with very swiftly for being unbiblical, was saying that there is good and evil in us. It's a bit of a yin and yang thing, I suppose good and evil in us, and we're all capable of doing what's right and all capable of doing evil, and we choose to save ourselves. Think about it. That is most people around us, outside this building, believe there is good and evil in all of us, and we can save ourselves by following a moral law. That's a society peer pressure. That's what people start believing. And actually, they stood back and thought about it. Well, why did I have to be shown by my parents how to be good, not how to be naughty? There is something in us to start with. Actually, the Bible declares we are far more sinful than we ever realised and yet far more loved than we can ever imagine. There is not two halves to us and we can choose which path we take, actually. By God's grace, unbelievers can do wonderful things for the world. It's by his grace. But it's not because they chose the good path and other people follow the evil path. Actually, we are all sinners We're all in need of a saviour. We cannot save ourselves. We're lost in our sin and we need Christ. Very, very different. How are we doing for time? That's all I want to say on peer pressure. I'm just saying be very aware, but I'm not saying withdraw from society and we go in a holy little huddle in the corner and we keep ourselves safe because Jesus said, get out there. What's his first word of the great commission to us? Go. But, in another part, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. But, so I'm, not, I'm not keeping you here to keep you safe, I'm sending you out there, because you've got a job to do. But, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be wise about the culture around you. Peter, uh, Paul did it all the time. He looked at the culture around him. He watched these films. He, he, he clicked through their websites. He learnt about them. Not when conscience starts pricking, it's causing him to sin. Of course not. But he was interested in what they were up to and what they believed so he could engage with them and share the gospel in a way that they understand using their language. But being wise as serpents and yet innocent as doves. If it causes you to sin, don't go anywhere near it, of course. But that doesn't mean we don't engage with the world and have a conversation with them and enjoy what's out there sometimes as well. So... What is Paul's response to Peter sitting on the other table? He goes and talks to him in front of everyone. <laughs> Good old Paul. And he says in verse 14, see what has he seen? 
When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them, they weren't acting in line with the truth of the gospel. The gospel is a plumb line. Remember I was talking about it, it's deeply simple. There is a simplicity to it. The gospel is God saves sinners. Jesus, eternal God, part of the part of the Trinity, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the Godhead, eternally loving, created us, we fell because we thought we knew better, and caused a chasm between imperfect man, perfect God, and Jesus came to us. Jesus died for us. We didn't come to him. And all you have to do, all you have to do, is believe that. And that is when you become one of his. Jesus saves sinners. We don't save ourselves. That is the truth of the gospel. And it's out of that, from the inside out, of Christ working in us through his Holy Spirit, that good action comes. We don't go for good action so that we can be better before God and win his favour. We do it just because we're bowled over what he's done for us and we love him so much, we just want to please him. Not to please him for ulterior motives, win him over and get saved more, but simply because we love him. It's inside out, it's not outside in salvation. Does that make sense? And that is the truth of the gospel. God saves sinners. Anything else is a non-gospel. And then Paul goes on to explain that gospel a little bit more using a, a word that I'm going to explain. In verse 15, and this is what he's saying out loud to Peter in front of everyone. He says, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. There it is again. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law no one will be justified. What does this word justified mean? Justified is the gospel simplified. It is the crux of Christianity. It's what Luther was fighting for in the 16th century with the, with the Catholic Church. He said it's not about works. It's by your faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done that you are saved and nothing else. Luther was Jesus plus nothing over and over again. Justified it simply means the opposite of condemnation. We're hearing that song, we're singing that song earlier. There's no condemnation. Because in Christ there is no condemnation. Justified means you are condemned by the sin you are born into, the sins you have committed. You are condemned by that before the great, perfect judge who can't tolerate anything but perfection by his own nature. And you're in the dock and he goes, there's no wiggle room, you're guilty. And he puts on the old black cap or whatever they do and declares the death penalty because it's treason. Is putting ourselves on the pedestal on the throne instead of him. Trying to hoof him off the throne and sitting on it and being our own gods effectively. It's treason, which deserves a death penalty. And the judge cannot ignore the crime and he cannot let us off because then he's not a perfect judge. So he takes on the death penalty himself. So we don't have to be separated from him forever. And in that moment on the cross... When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When our sins were on his shoulders, there was that rift in the Godhead, briefly for that moment, when he knew that death penalty. They'd never been separated. There'd never been a rift amongst them for eternity. And that was the moment he took our sin, our dirt, our shame, our wrongdoing, our imperfection upon him. The judge took on our death penalty. 
And justification is that. Justification is a declaration that you are innocent. You are innocent. You are innocent. You are innocent. I know what you've done and I haven't ignored it. I've dealt with it. I took it on me. You're innocent just through faith in me and what I've done. Jesus plus nothing. Do you remember those bangles? What would Jesus do, bangles? There's benefit to them. They're helpful. Sometimes in situations it helps just to remember. I don't really know where to go here. What would Jesus do? There's benefit to it, but there is a bit of a downside because you can get wrapped up in this whole living my life is doing what Jesus did and following his example. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And actually we, get, we can get under pressure. We can condemn ourselves and feel guilty over and over again because when we slip up or when we sin or when we make mistakes, we get it wrong. It's pressure, pressure, pressure. Maybe we should have other bangles. WHJD, not WWJD. Instead of what would Jesus do, how about what has Jesus done? We'll get some tipex out, be right. Okay. <laughs> what has Jesus done? That makes all the difference. In this situation, I'm feeling nervous. I know I should speak up, but fear of man. Not what would Jesus do? Well, he'd speak up, so I better get enough strength in me, good and evil in me. I'll go for the good side. I'll get enough strength on my own terms, and I'll say what needs to be right. Or, what has Jesus done? He died for me. I am more sinful than I ever dare imagine, but I'm more loved than I ever dare imagine. He died for me. He loves me. He thinks I'm brilliant because of what he's done, not because of what I've done. He chose me. He knew my name before I was born. I'm a son of the Father. I'm a brother of Christ. I'm seated in heavenly realms. Why am I worried when they've got my back? I'm going to trust that they're going to be with me through this and I'm going to say what I need to say. What has Jesus done, not what would Jesus do? Does that, make, does that help? It's still not easy. Life ain't easy. We still get frightened. I do. It's fine. And sometimes I step back when I should step forward. I'm not as big and clever as anyone else. But it's all about what has Jesus done for us. And if his work on the cross is sufficient to justify you so there is no condemnation, why, how dare we try and add to that? We do. But actually, how dare we? It's about the inside out, not outside in. I'm going to tie this up in a minute. I'm, going to, I'm doing some editing on the fly. But I just want to look a little bit more at what Paul has done here in his response to Peter before we move on. He stood up in front of the crowd and lambasted Peter. But he's not actually picking at Peter's character, actually. It's not actually that personal. He's just declaring the gospel to Peter. He's pleading in front of everyone because they need to hear it as well. Peter, think about it. What has Jesus done? Therefore, why are you over there? You don't need to be. Let's put the tables together. Make one big table. Why are we doing it separate? What has Jesus done? And he does it out of love. He speaks the truth, but he does it in love. Godly confrontation is needed, but it doesn't need to be arrogant or it doesn't need to be avoided because it comes from within. When we recognise what Jesus has done for us, we have a hunger for his honour and we have a humility of knowing our standing in him as we walk through it together. 
Hunger and humility is what we see here from Paul. A hunger, a zeal for Christ is active, it's not passive. Oh, I really hate what's going on over there, but I'm only little me. They wouldn't listen to me. He's like, what are they doing? They're destroying Jesus' message. They're destroying what Jesus has done for us and what they're telling the world. I cannot keep my mouth shut. There is a hunger in him. Psalm 69 verse 9 says, Zeal for your house consumes me. Doesn't it? That's what David says. And the insults of those who insult you fall on me. There is an affiliation with his king. It's just like, I cannot keep my mouth shut. I have to say something. But if we just stick with that hunger and we don't have the humility, when we deal with it, there will be an unbearing arrogance that will bring disunity, not unity. And so it's humility as well. It's balanced by the recognition that I am no better than you, Maureen. I am no better than Tom. I am no better than David. I am no better than Julia. Jesus is the grand equaliser. He levels the playing field and we recognise when we take a step back, we go, we are all sinners. We all need him. Through faith in Jesus Christ, I am saved because he chose me. I didn't choose him. It's not what I've done, it's what he's done. It doesn't make me feel small. It makes me feel big. But in the light of him, I'm not big-headed. Does that make sense? It's another outcome of justification. Otherwise, you get arrogance or retreat. One more thing before we finish. It's all very easy to hear this. To realise what Jesus has done for us. To be aware of peer pressure. And to understand that more we recognise and feed and dwell on what Jesus has done for us, it creates a hunger in us to see him honoured in the church and outside the church. And there is a humility in us to realise we are his children. He's got our back, but it's about him, not us. And we are able to speak out in love. Putting that into practice, is it easy? No, no. Because we still slip up and we still fall back into old ways. Old habits die hard, don't they? Not just actions, but thoughts that then lead to the actions. We live out our theology. Do you realise this? How you live will reflect what your theology and your understanding of what God has or hasn't done for you is. And often, if your actions are awry, it's because your theology is awry, your doctrine, your understanding. In Christ, when you give your life to Christ, when you say... I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for what I've done. I need your help. You paid the price for me. Help me. I repent and I confess you as Lord and I want to live for you. When you've lived by faith in Christ and you are his, carrying on through life, the Bible declares the truth that the old you is dead and the new you is raised with him. I am a new creation. But we hear that and then we don't understand why we keep falling back into old habits. But I thought the old me was dead. Didn't we? I thought he was dead. Why does he keep popping up again? What's going on? The truth is actually the old me is dead but he's a zombie. He's still walking around with you. Brains. He's still walking around with you because old habits die hard. He is dead but he keeps whispering in your ear. Go on, it won't hurt. It doesn't matter if you don't say anything. Go on, 
I know you shouldn't, but actually it'll make you feel better if you bite that person's head off. Oh, zombie. I didn't mean like that. Not physically. Verbally bite their head off. The old you is still lumbering around. And old habits die hard. You are raised with Christ. There is a new you. You are a new creation. But those thought processes take a long time to change. And that is feeding yourself on this. And praying. Over and over again. Get to know this book. This is more than a book. This is more than a collection of words. This is God's revelation to us of who he is, what he's done, and these words are alive. Holy Spirit brings them alive. Feed on it. And over time, your doctrine is moulded more and more and more into understanding the truth of who he is, not what you thought he was. And that zombie gets further and further and further left behind. And your thought process is more naturally thinking about him and what he has done for you. Does that make sense? For example, we hate discipline. Hebrews 12 talks about it. That when hard times come and we've been asking for easy times, I've been asking for a pay rise, I've been asking for more money, and we're still struggling to pay the bills. God, why aren't you answering me? And then the more you feed on this, the more you realise he's a good God who does care. And when he doesn't give you what you're asked for, it's because he's got something better for you. It might be character change. It might be you just need to learn how to steward your money better. Or it may be because he's got something bigger around the corner. But it's because he's good not because he doesn't care or he's horrible. Discipline is a good thing. It's a hard thing. But Hebrews 12 reminds us, when you're disciplined by your dad, it's because he loves you. There's your doctrine gradually feeding your soul to know I can walk through this because my God's got my back. And then this, this justification I was talking about, this declaration that you're no longer condemned, the crime and the punishment is dealt with. When you learn that you are a child of God, saved not by your works, but by his. You don't feel the need to put other people down or big yourself up because you know he loves you. And it doesn't matter actually what they think at the end of the day. You start to regard that less and less the more you realise what he thinks of you and what he's done for you. You don't need to put other people down. You have a humble confidence and you have a hunger and a humility to follow him, to pursue him, to bless him, and to bless the people around you. Knowing you're standing in him. It's less about what would Jesus do, although that is helpful. It's more about what has Jesus done. Let me pray. Jesus. When you write it down in a couple of sentences, it's simple what you have done for us, but we can never get to the bottom of what those words truly mean. There is such a depth to what you have done for me throughout eternity. Your grand rescue plan that you had in place before I came along. I'm never going to get to the bottom of that. But I know it's true because your word tells me and I thank you. Jesus, I thank you that you help us see not only what you have done for us, but how that applies to everyday life. And I say thank you that as we look around in our own personal lives, in our workplace, in our church, in our home, in the shops, and in the wider gatherings in our community, that we are able to discern what is in line with your gospel and what is not, to know when to speak up and when not, 
and that in that there is a freedom. No longer a fear of what man will think, but there is a freedom to love them because of what you have done for us, a freedom to speak up when we need to, and actually a freedom to perhaps not speak up when it can make things worse as well. But it's about being led by you, and Holy Spirit, we need your help to do that. We need you to guide us through life, because we ain't ever going to get it right on our own, are we? If you don't know Christ this morning, if you sense God beckoning you like Maggie was referring to earlier, if you don't know what it means to have an innocent declaration across over your head, if you want to know that freedom, that joy, that peace, that reconciliation with the God of the universe, come and speak to one of us afterwards. Even right now you can pray with us. God, I recognise you as the perfect king who created all things, who created us to have relationship with you, and we're the ones that screwed that up. And yet you, Jesus, came to us, made a way for us by taking the punishment on our behalf. And all we have to do is believe in you and trust you as our saviour. Just confess your sins, whatever he's revealing to your heart. Confess that to him. Keep a short account with him and say, I'm sorry, I don't want to do that again, but I need your help too. And I want to live for you. Because you're the only one who knows what's right, and I'm the one who always gets it wrong. If you prayed that prayer, and everybody else who's got their eyes closed, put your hand up. helpful just to make an action before him. Jesus. Thank you, Lord. As we go from this place or as we fellowship afterwards, Lord, may we not lose sight of it's about what you have done for us. Teach us to know what that looks like as we go through our daily lives. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. Please do stop.